chip, putting that together, that is a, um, it struck me as we were listening to that and watching that, that that's probably what heaven is going to look like. Uh, heaven will sound like that too, maybe, but heaven will look that way. Um, what you saw there was a little snapshot into Wednesday night here at Riverview on Wednesday nights. We, our kids are part of their time on Wednesday nights as choir, and so that's that group that was before us. If you have a Bible, please turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, as we continue our series of messages on Proverbs and wisdom. Last week we saw that wisdom is the God-given ability to diagnose and respond, to see what's really happening through insight and discernment, and the guidance the Lord gives us to not only know the right path, but to follow the right path, to live it out. Today we're going to talk about an important question, and that is now that we know what wisdom is, how do we get wisdom? How do we receive this ability to discern and respond? Of all the messages I think we're going to work through in the book of Proverbs, I think this might be the most important for all of us because it reaches all of us. There's not one of us that is in not in need of wisdom. Now, there might be a topic we cover as we begin to work through the book that's going to be more relevant to some of us than others, but all of us can desperately agree that we need wisdom. Amen? With that said, would you please stand to your feet? Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, as we see how... We are meant to develop and grow in wisdom. Proverbs 1, verse 7, we read these words. The Bible says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Would you please pray with me, church? God, in these moments, we're asking for you to speak to our hearts. Would you remove distraction? Would you open our minds to hear what you have to say? And Lord, as you speak to us, would you help us not just be hearers of your word, or would you also help us be doers of your word as well? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. I grew up in a suburb of Memphis, Tennessee. It's where I was born and raised. I see John Bailey here to my right. John's a fellow Memphian. And one of the distinctive things about living in Memphis is the Mississippi River, probably similar to people that have grown up in St. Louis. You are right there on the river. One of the things that's unique about my family is I come from a family of people who've worked on the river. A lot of my uh, ancestors, people that have gone before me, made their living uh, piloting or captaining uh, different river boats. Something that's symbolic for me, I don't know if you feel this way, John, but when I go back home, and I cross that bridge going into Memphis, and I cross the Mississippi River, it's like I'm returning back to my childhood. There's something very symbolic about passing over that bridge, and there's the pyramid. If you guys know the pyramid that I'm talking about there, which is now a Bass Pro shop of all things. Bass Pro has taken over the world. Uh, There's the Bass Pro shop, which is where I used to go when I was growing up to see the University of Memphis play basketball. But The Mississippi River, interestingly enough, actually has its source all the way up in Minnesota. 
the source of the Mississippi River is a lake called Lake Itasca. It's a lake that's spring-fed, and from this lake begins the Mississippi River. Now, granted, the river has other rivers that feed into it, but its fountainhead, its source, is this lake all the way up in Minnesota, and it comes all the way down into the Gulf of Mexico. And here's why I mention that to you. The word in your Bibles, in verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That word beginning, we shouldn't think of it like a starting line that you kind of pass over and never return. We should think of it more like a source that we've got to come back to over and over again for wisdom. Just like the Mississippi River has as its source this lake all the way up in Minnesota, there is too for you and for me a source that we must return to over and over and over again if we're going to receive wisdom. Here's the source that the scripture gives us. Look in your Bibles again at verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the source or beginning of wisdom. Whenever you see that word Lord in your Bibles, and you see it in all caps there, that's the personal name for God. It's the difference between me looking out to some of you and saying, hey you, and actually calling you by your name. So when you call someone by name, I'm looking at Jim Wright over here to my right. That's appropriate, to my right. Jim, when I say Jim, there's a certain set of things from the past that come to my mind. I've known Jim for about three or four years. There are certain experiences that when I say his name, there's an association with those things. Him becoming a deacon in our body, him teaching a life group, him being our deacon chairman right now. But there's also not just experiences there, there's also a set of character qualities when I think about a person's name. So when I think about Jim, for example, I think about somebody who's been encouraging and supportive of me over my four years as pastor here. When we say the Lord, which is translated Yahweh, we're meant to do a similar exercise with God. We're meant to think about his history and what he's done. You can sum up God's history really in one word, and that is promise. God has made promises, and he's kept promises. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he promised them, among other things, that they would have land and a nation and a great people. But most importantly for the Gentiles in the room, he promised that from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would come one who would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. We know that to be Jesus Christ. Jesus was the promise that was made, and he is the promise that has been kept for the people of this world. That's why it's so sweet when we look at this stage and we see kids from different backgrounds, different shades of skin, all singing to Jesus. What we're seeing on this stage is the fulfillment of God's promise. But we're also seeing character qualities about God that we need to remember. We're seeing that God is holy and perfect in every way. 
we're also seeing that because God is holy, He is wrathful towards sin, but instead of giving that to you and me, He gives it and pours it out on His Son. Whenever we read the word, the Lord, we're meant to bring to mind all of these things. It's like a, it's like a hyperlink, a, a button on a computer that we push, and it brings up all this information about who God is. Now, here's why this is so important. Solomon, under the inspiration, wants us to understand that the source of wisdom is not me. It's not you. It's not the problem if you just stare at it long enough and find a solution. It's not even a self-help book you can find at a bookstore. No, Solomon wants us to understand that the source of wisdom we desperately need is the Lord. The way that we get wisdom is not by staring at our problems longer. The way we get wisdom is by fixing our eyes on our King. Now here's what's important about this. Solomon tells us that there is a particular way to respond to the Lord that brings wisdom in our lives. Look back at the text. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning or source of knowledge and wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is how you and I receive the ability to diagnose and discern and respond. And when we read that word fear, it's easy to think about it in a very negative light. Like I'm afraid of somebody, so I'm paralyzed with fear shaking, or I'm afraid of somebody, so I run from them. But the kind of fear that the Bible is referring to here for believers is a fear of respect or reverence. I have and had a healthy fear of my parents, right? That's what we want. Some of you are laughing because you still have that fear of your parents, right? And there were times when I may have been tempted to do the wrong thing, but because of some respect and a healthy fear I had for my parents, I didn't do it. The kind of fear that Solomon's talking about is a reverence and a respect. It's the picture of someone saluting someone else out of respect. But as you unpack this idea, especially as you work through the book of Proverbs, you understand that fear is not just respect. Fear also includes a treasuring, a value that we place on someone else. And here's the point I think that we can pull together from numerous verses in the book of Proverbs, but especially verse 7. When we treasure and value Jesus above all other things, we put ourselves in a position to receive real wisdom. Jesus told a story one time about treasuring things. He told a story about a man who found a treasure in a field one day. This man was digging in a field for something, and as he was digging, his shovel hit something in the ground, and he uncovered it and pulled it out and realized it was a treasure chest. It was filled with valuable things, gold, jewelry, all kind of manner of valuable possessions. So the man closes the chest. He puts it back in the ground and covers it up. He goes back to his home and begins to sell 
everything that he has. And he begins to sell it with such gusto, with such bravado, that we're meant to look at this and go, wow, what is he doing? It would have been obvious and common for some of his friends to come up and say, why are you selling everything that you have? And the Bible tells us that Jesus records communicating to his disciples that this man sold everything that he had because what was in the field was more valuable than all his earthly possessions. So he sells everything he has, and with the money from his possessions, he goes and buys that field. And Jesus says, the way that man valued that field is the way we are to value him. We're to treasure Christ in our hearts in such a way that we value him more than all of our earthly possessions. That because Jesus Christ has suffered in your place and my place and risen again, if we know him, if we've received his grace and his mercy, that what he's given us is better than anything we could ever accumulate, ever accumulate or obtain in this world. So here's what this means for you and for me. When we understand that the fear of the Lord is the source of wisdom, you could sum it up this way. Worship of the Lord unlocks wisdom for the Lord. When I worship Jesus rightly, treasuring him in my heart above all things, my eyes are opened to see things as they really are. So here's what this means, sweet people. The source of wisdom is not myself. It's not the problems that I'm facing. It's not some article on Wikipedia. The source of wisdom I've got to come back to over and over and over again is a right worship of the Lord that opens my eyes to see things as they really are. Now here's the million dollar question. Why does right worship of Jesus result in wisdom? Why is it such that the fear of the Lord is this source we've got to come back to over and over again for wisdom? Here's the answer. When I worship Jesus rightly, I connect myself to the truth. When I worship Jesus, it unlocks wisdom because I'm setting my eyes and I'm connecting my life to reality. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Jesus really is the king. Not me. Not you. You and I weren't meant to be worshipped. Jesus Christ really is the one who's coming back again to usher in his kingdom. You and I were made to live for him, to worship him. And so when I worship Jesus, when I treasure him above all other things, I'm treasuring what is truly valuable. I'm connecting myself to what is real. One of the things that I've seen lately that illustrates this, I think, is these videos that are going around Facebook about people who are colorblind seeing color for the first time know how many of you have seen these videos floating around, but it's this, this person who, uh, uh, old or young, has never been able to see color. They've always seen the world in black and white. 
and through scientific inquiry and through help, they, they find these glasses that will allow them to see in color. And the video displays this person with this box and their families all around, and they're sitting outside. They open the box and they see these glasses. And for the first time, when they put the glasses on, they begin to see things as they really are. They begin to see the beauty of the sky and the color of the trees. For the first time, they begin to behold the color of their loved one's eyes and their hair and the contours of their face in a way that they've never seen before. For the first time, when they put those glasses on, they're seeing things as they really are. When you and I treasure Jesus above all things in our hearts, we begin to see things as they really are. The challenge is to get our eyes off of our problems and our circumstances and our situations that are difficult for a moment long enough to fix our eyes on Christ. Because when I get my eyes off of my problems and onto Jesus, it's not that my problems go away. It's just that I begin to see them rightly. So let me make it even more plain. Without Jesus, you can never have real wisdom. If I say this in the negative, without Christ, without treasuring and worshiping Jesus above all things, you can never have true wisdom. It's a pretty bold claim, Spencer. Let me try to explain why that's true. Because you will always worship something. The human heart will always worship something. And whatever you worship, the thing that you worship will be the lens through which you view the world. So if you worship money and material possessions, the wisdom through which you will view the world is through money. You'll make decisions about acquiring more money, you make decisions about protecting your money. Doesn't matter what unethical things that you're going to be led to do. Doesn't matter who you push out of the way or stomp on. Because that's your most valuable thing. Because that's your God. The wisdom you appropriate in this world will be conditioned by that. If your God is relationships, occurring more social networking, more social capital, you're going to look at the world through the lens of accruing and protecting relationships. Doesn't matter what you have to say. Doesn't matter who you have to manipulate. Doesn't matter who you have to lie to to get friends and to keep the ones you have happy. You're going to do whatever it takes to do that. Whatever you value and worship, you are enslaved what the Bible here is telling us from Proverbs 1-7 and the greater testimony of Scripture is the only way to have real wisdom is to value Jesus above all other things. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you out there are thinking, wait a minute, Spencer. If you're saying that without Jesus you can't have wisdom, you're saying that Christians are the only one with real wisdom. Yes, that's what I'm saying. 
Take it further. You're saying, but wait, 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 wait. But there are people out there who are not Christians who say very wise, profound things. How can those two realities be true? Here's how they're true. When you become a Christian, the picture is God opens your eyes and he unrolls his architectural drawings for the universe, for the world and how the world works. Architectural drawings for your home, for example, show you how everything is going to work together. How does the foundation work? How does the structure work? How does the electrical and the plumbing and all the things that are going to happen, how do they work together? When you become a Christian, it's as if God unrolls the architectural drawings for the world. That doesn't mean that you always understand every circumstance in your life and why they happen, but it does mean that you understand how everything works together for good and for God's glory. Without Jesus, it is possible for people to understand parts of this architectural drawing, but never understand how they work together and why they're there. So without Jesus, you might be able to understand the electrical components of that drawing. You might understand how electricity works. But without Jesus, you can never make sense of why that's there. Without Jesus, you might be able to understand a particular room in the house and maybe some of the, the way it functions. But without him, you can never understand how that room fits into God's larger plans and purposes. Here's why this is so important. The world oftentimes will make semi-accurate or appearing to be accurate diagnoses of problems, but they will always make horrible prescriptions for the solution. The reason God's wisdom is so important is that without it, you will oftentimes make inaccurate diagnoses that appear to be true, and as a result, you will always appropriate the wrong solution. Let me give you an example. In 1973, our country in the Roe versus Wade decision legalized abortion on demand for this entire country. And we regularly and rightly call abortion what it is, evil. Because we believe life starts at conception. We believe any taking of life, even inconvenient life, is wrong. And while we will never stop calling abortion what it is, we do acknowledge that in the Roe versus Wade decision, people were trying to diagnose a problem they saw in our culture. People were observing, coming out of the 60s and the sexual revolution, that many women were being abandoned by their husbands when they had children. We were observing as a culture that many women were being left to fend for themselves as it related to their well-being because a husband would leave the picture, leave them defenseless. And rather than prescribing a way to try to protect women, rather than prescribing a way of trying to deal with the situation in a way that would protect the children, we made the child the problem. 
You see, the reason we got into the mess that we ran in the first place is in the 60s we abandoned as a culture wholesale God's plan for sex and marriage. We abandoned the idea that sex was to happen between a man and woman under one union and marriage before God. And because we abandoned that, when we got to the 70s, we went, "Uh uh-oh, we've got this problem. And rather than going back to that, we didn't make free, uninhibited sex the problem. We made the child the problem. And when we did that as a culture, we seared our consciences and we prescribed a solution that is nothing less than evil and vile. The world accurately saw this is a problem. But without the wisdom Jesus has to offer, without the wisdom that the Word gives us, they appropriated an terrible solution. Listen to me, sweet people. Without Jesus, we will never diagnose the real problem, and we will always appropriate wrong solutions. Imagine going to the doctor, and you've got a cough. And the cough's getting worse and worse and worse. And you go to the doctor and you say, I've got to find some relief. You've got to help me. The doctor gives you a treatment, gives you a prescription, says try this for a week. After a week or two of taking that prescription, taking that medicine, you're no better. So you go back to the doctor again. And they say, well, we've got to try something different now. And they give you another prescription. Two weeks later, you've still got the cough. What's wrong? The doctor is treating the symptoms but obviously is not dealing with the cause. Until you deal with the cause that's bringing about your symptoms, the symptoms are not going to go away. You're just going to manage them. The cause, the root issue in our culture today that's got to be dealt with is the sinfulness and brokenness of the human heart. If you don't address the heart... All you're dealing with is symptoms. What appears to be the problem on the surface rather than the root. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge because it deals with the cause of every problem that we face in this world, and that's our sin. So let me ask you a question. Where are you looking for wisdom? Where are you trying to find real wisdom? Let me tell you what this pretty blonde here and I have found. This is my wife, by the way, in case you didn't know that. Uh, We have found that wisdom oftentimes brings us to remember how incapable we are of solving our problems. We have kids that are sinners, they're really good at sinning. One of them was standing right here, singing like a little angel. But he's a sinner. His sister, as cute as she can be, is also a sinner. I never had to sit Paige down and say, now Paige, let me show you how to be selfish. Let me show you how to be self-absorbed and to think everything is about you. I've never had to do that with her. Do you know why? Because she enters this world with a heart that thinks she's the main character, that thinks she's the boss. And so, Shelly, many times in the evening, we will sit and we will talk about how do we deal with this and how do we guide them and how do we do this and do that. And do you know what we've discovered? 
we can guide them. We can point them in the right direction. But there's a point at which we have to realize we are incapable of fixing our children. And so do you know what we've discovered? There are key moments where I look at her and she looks at me and we say, we have got to get on our knees, on our faces before God and pray for the souls of our children. Because their only hope is Jesus. Anything less than that, I'm just modifying their behavior. And they're going to do what I'm going to say because I'm their authority. But when they're under another authority like college that tells them they can do whatever they want, you know what they're going to do? They're going to do whatever they want. Parents, we are not merely trying to manage the behavior of our children. We want to see their hearts want to obey Jesus. I do not have the ability to change my children's heart, but Jesus does. You and I oftentimes have to realize wisdom is not going to come probably from another hour and a half of conversation about how messed up the situation is. Oftentimes wisdom will come when I get on my knees and I say, God, I am incapable. White flag is going up. I desperately need you. Now here's what I want to do in conclusion, very quickly. If it is true that wisdom is unlocked when we worship Worshiping Jesus rightly unlocks wisdom. That's true. I want to finish by giving you four postures, four responses we need to have if we're going to encourage wisdom in our lives. Four postures that we must have if wisdom, the ability to discern and respond, is going to be a reality. Number one, repentance and faith or trust repentance of our sin and trusting Jesus. Now, I've listed this as one posture, but I'm giving you two actions because I believe these two things are two sides of one coin, okay? Look back at your Bibles in verse 7. I'll show you why this is important. The Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let me encourage you this morning. All of you enter this world a fool. That was meant to be a little tongue-in-cheek. All of us have entered this world foolish because left to ourselves, what we do is we spurn God. We reject God's discipline and wisdom, and instead we worship ourselves. That's what we do. Naturally, it's what all of us do. It's why my my one-year-old and my four-year-old and my seven-year-old, who I love very dearly, it's why they do what they do. They're worshiping themselves. And something has to happen to deal with this foolishness because the reality is because I've rejected and spurned God, His response to me is wrath and penalty and judgment. And while God was perfectly justified in giving that to you, and giving that to me. Instead, he pours it out on his son, Jesus. He gives to Jesus what I should have gotten. And the way that I become a Christian is repenting and trusting Jesus. And the way I remain a Christian is by repenting and trusting Jesus. Repenting means to turn from sin, to turn away from error and deception and do an about face and trust Jesus. Remember, all of us 
every person walking in this room this morning is trusting something. The way that we receive God's mercy and grace is by trusting Christ. But if you listened carefully a moment ago, I also said the way that we remain a Christian is by repentance and faith. It's how we continue to grow. I don't mean to imply that we can lose our salvation. We do not believe that we can lose our salvation because salvation is not just me reaching up to God. Grace is God reaching down to me and never letting go. But we do acknowledge that this foolishness that verse 7 describes, oftentimes, even for believers, resurfaces. There are times when I'm tempted to believe that something other than Jesus is more valuable. And when I do, my response is not to bemoan that or to think the sky is falling. My response is to turn away from sin, even as a Christian, turn away from that and trust Jesus again. Repentance and faith are not a one-time activity. Repentance and faith are a lifestyle we're called to. So imagine a garden in your minds that you put seeds in, you water them, and you come back six months later expecting results. How, those of you that are gardeners, how would it work if you planted some seeds, put some water down, and left it alone for six months? What would happen to those things that you planted? You'd have problems. You'd have thorns and thistles and weeds. What do you have to do? You have to constantly maintain that garden in order for it to grow. In the same way, God's deposit of grace and mercy in our lives, we are meant to be people cultivating that. Fully recognizing that God's the one that brings the growth, we still recognize we have a responsibility to put sin to death and encourage faith and trust in Jesus. Here's why this is so important. Some of us are looking for wisdom in our lives when we're unrepentant about our sin. If you are unrepentant about sin in your lives, do not expect wisdom to be something you're enjoying. Because what sin does, like, that, like those thorns and thistles and weeds, it chokes out life. And when I've got sin in my life, I cannot see things rightly because I'm buying into deception. When we have sin in our lives, the response is repentance and faith. Number two, the second posture that I think we've got to have to encourage this kind of wisdom is fellowship with God in His Word. We believe that this book is how God changes people's lives. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we believe God uses His Word to change us from the inside out. But here's what's important. God's Word doesn't just change our minds, showing us what's right and wrong. God's Word also provides the nourishment we need to do what we're called to do. God's word provides the courage we need to do the right thing even when we know it will cost us. I mentioned my wife a moment ago. My wife, when we were first dating, ran a marathon, 26.2 miles. And throughout that marathon, there were these little stations where they had water or they had nourishment that people could get as they're running this race. Here's the reality. The reason they have those is because if you're going to run 26.2 miles consecutively, you're going to need water and nourishment to make it. Here's what concerns me. Some of us are running the Christian life with zero nourishment, and we're wondering why we're tired. 
and we don't have wisdom. The Word of God is the nourishment God offers us, little stations He offers us to nourish us through the race He's called us to. If you want to encourage the fear of the Lord in your life, regularly spending time in the Word, not just reading for information, but reading to spend time with God is what long-term will change us. Number three, prayer and humility. Prayer and humility. I put these together because I think prayer fundamentally is an acknowledgement of our need for God. When I pray, I'm stopping to say, God, this is not just my laundry list of things I want you to do for me. When I pray biblically, I'm praying saying, God, I need you desperately. The reason Shelly and I, most evenings you'll find us praying for our children is because we need God. Let me say it this way to help you process that. You need God as much on your best day as you do on your worst day. So think about this. Think about your best days. Think about my best days when I became a Christian when I was seven, when I married this pretty blonde here in 2008. I think about the birth of my three children. I think about getting a phone call from a church in Osage Beach, Missouri, asking me to become their pastor. I also think about some of my worst days, miscarriages that our family has walked through friendships that have dissolved and even resulted in betrayal and, and damaged trust that's hurt us deeply. And what I can say is both of those buckets, my best day and my worst day, I need God just as much in both of those days. The danger, of course, is thinking, I only need God when I'm having problems. I only need God when, my, when things are going bad. But the reality is the life that he's called you to live, the race that he's called you and I to run, we need God just as much on our best day as we do our worst. Prayer, regularly stopping and saying when you're discussing problems, God, we need you, is one of the ways you encourage wisdom in your life. Fourthly and finally, forgiveness of others forgiveness of others. I, I firmly believe that, that the vertical relationship we have with God is the source of wisdom that makes sense of the horizontal problems we deal with. God is the source so that we can understand how to live rightly. But do understand that our relationships with other people do impact our vertical relationship with God. If you're taking notes, let me give you an example. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, tells husbands that if they do not respect and treat their wives with honor, that our prayers could be hindered. In other words, my relationship with Shelley, if I don't treat her the way she's meant to be treated, it actually has implications and impact on my relationship with God. And here's the point I want to make to you in closing. One of the ways we encourage wisdom in our lives is to regularly and aggressively offer forgiveness to other people who have hurt us. There is a misunderstanding that if I hold on to bitterness long enough, that if I hold on to unforgiveness towards somebody else for what they have done to me long enough, that I can somehow 
hurt that person. But the reality is, unforgiveness and bitterness actually clouds things so that I disconnect myself from wisdom. When I don't offer people forgiveness, I disconnect myself from wisdom because I act as if I earn God's grace. You see, when I withhold forgiveness from you, I act like you have to earn my kindness and forgiveness. And I forget that God didn't treat me that way. God forgave me when I was a rebel running the other way. And when I don't offer somebody forgiveness, I act as if I did enough on my own to earn God's forgiveness. You see, a lack of forgiveness that I withhold from other people actually reveals a deception about how I'm seeing God in myself. I say that because I regularly, as a pastor, deal with people who have serious bitterness and unforgiveness towards other people. If you are looking for wisdom in your life and it's eluding you, one of the questions I would encourage you to ask is, is there forgiveness I'm withholding another person to another person? Well, Spencer, you don't know what that person did to me. They've, they've never repented or asked for my forgiveness. So I've got to hold this over them till they do what they're supposed to do. It is not your job to fix that person. You're to call that person to what they're supposed to do, but at the end of the day, we are people who received forgiveness and show forgiveness. Church, listen to me. We need to be a people of wisdom, discerning and responding, but the only way we rightly receive wisdom is when we worship. Worship unlocks God's wisdom in our lives. My prayer would be that we don't look for wisdom in our hearts, we don't look for wisdom by staring at the conversation and the problem for hours at a time, but that we look for wisdom through fearing the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, we thank you for the truth.